There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. WCW legend Eric Bischoff is penning his second memoir, Grateful, now available for pre-order before its November release. I spoke to the icon about his new book and his prolific career at WCW, signing Hulk Hogan, birthing the NWO, creating the cruiserweight division, navigating the Montreal Screwjob, and withstanding a DX invasion to beat the WWF in the Monday Night Ratings War for 83 weeks, which is now the name of his podcast. Hey, Eric Bischoff, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP in Washington, D.C. Hey, I haven't been to D.C. in a while, so it's great to be there digitally anyway. Yeah, we'll welcome you virtually. <laughs> well, so our <laughs> listeners know we're talking to you because, you know, you not only are you the longtime, you know, legendary face of WCW and WWE, you host the 83 Weeks podcast. Everyone check that out. But the real reason we're talking is you have a new book called Grateful Out. Um, I believe it comes out later this fall, but the pre-sale is, is happening now. So um, tell me about, you know, the idea to do your second autobiography. You did Controversy Creates Cash in 2006. And is the idea of this one covers everything that's happened in your life after that? That? It's exactly it. Exactly it. You know, it's funny when I, when I was approached to write or to write a book when I was in WWE, which ultimately became Controversy Creates Cash. I was like, really? I, what would I talk about? You know, and in the process of doing that book, and it ended up on the New York Times bestseller list for a hot minute. Uh, but the process of doing it was really, um, was really interesting. And going back and remembering things and putting together, you know, details and really trying to recreate a picture uh, in that much depth really opened my eyes. And then subsequently, about two years ago, not even that, a year ago, I was approached by um, Guy Evans, who wrote a great book, um, The Incredible Rise, The Inevitable Fall of Ted Turner's WCW. Amazing book. He reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I've been following you a while and listening to you and your podcast. I think you got a lot to say. Would you consider? And I thought the same thing. It was like, what, what the hell would I talk about? You know? <laughs> but again, that process revealed a lot to me. You know, it made me see things and realize things that I probably was just self-absorbed to otherwise. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And there's so much stuff that, you know, maybe stuff that you tackled in that first book that we can, you know, maybe double back and get to later in this interview. But uh, I guess tell me about Grateful. Um, I guess we it's since it's post 2006 career, I guess this covers what your recent WWE return, some TNA, even a little AEW. And I guess and then I guess personal life stuff, too. Right. Why? Why you're grateful. It covers the career and the personal stuff. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the business side, the professional side of my last 15 years, and it does pick up where controversy creates cash left off. When I was done with WWE, I really, really believed my 
career in wrestling was over and I was happy about it. I was ready to kind of take on that next chapter of my life. And uh, lo and behold, I ended up back in it. So from a business perspective, yes, it does cover, you know, TNA, a lot of TNA in ways I haven't discussed before. Same with going to WWE as an executive for four months. Uh, <laughs> talked a lot about that. And, and what I learned about myself, especially, you know, over that period of time. Um, but most of all, in reflecting back the last 15 years, I really realized for the first time, and the book kind of takes you on that journey of the relevation, for me at least, that, you know, well, I did what I did because I'm an entrepreneur and I'm competitive and I'm an aggressive personality and I like money and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I'm just like everybody else. But I, I was running so hard and so fast that I didn't realize the impression some of the things that I was doing was making on people. Mm. And I, you know, I won't take you through the whole book, but it all started with a young lady in Phoenix, Texas, who told me a story about her and her dad and growing up and losing her dad mm. and needing, <laughs> I'll cry if I even say it, and needing someone to walk her down the aisle at her wedding. Oh my God. That, and I went, okay. I know I did this for the fun and the money and all the other stuff that everybody else does stuff for, but damn, that made a difference. And over the past 15 years, there's been not maybe as dramatic examples of that, but a lot of examples of things like that in it. Every time something like that happens now, and part of it is because learning to be grateful has taught me to look for those things where I kind of didn't, but it's just opened up my eyes to just how much impact some of the things that, I did or was involved with affected people on a positive in a positive way. And that made me more grateful than the money and the fame and the travel and the ego and all the other crap. Um, so appreciate that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not putting it down. I love it, but I love the other side of it too. What I really learned along this journey and my wife has been banging on me with, for this, like for 40 years, she's very, <laughs> she's, she's wise beyond her years. Um, but once I started recognizing all the things around me that I have to be grateful for, everything else got a lot easier, brother. Oh, I bet. It's I like bet. doors opened up, relationships opened up. It's like, hmm, there's something to this stuff. Absolutely. Well, there's something to what you're saying because we're only five minutes in and you already have, have us both tearing up. Come on, man. <laughs> you made us choke <laughs> up. Oh, I'm not crying. You're crying. All right. Well, whenever I have someone on, um, I love to tease what they're talking about, but then if possible, I always like to hit pause and I'd love to move a little more chronologically, set the stage and then wrap it back around to what you cover in the book. If, if, if you, you do whatever you want, man, I'm, I'm just here for the ride. All right, let's ride. All right. So you're born in Detroit in uh, what? 1955, something like that. Um, 55. Yeah. 55. Older than dirt. Oh, that's uh, rebel without a cause year. Great year. Marty, a bunch of good movies that year. All right. So you're in your, so that means that you're probably, I guess, in your thirties ish, 31, 30, 31, when you started AWA under Vern Gagne in 86. And I guess then Ted Turner hires you at WCW in 91, great American bash, the rest is history. But talk about, you know, that, that early period of, you know, breaking into the wrestling biz, you know, how, how did this guy with the famously great head of hair uh, <laughs> get into the wrestling biz? Probably only because I had a great head of hair. Vern Gagne was bald. I think he, he lived vicariously through me, <laughs> or at least through my hair. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it was really a coincidence. I, I've always been an entrepreneur, which means I've always been a salesman, one way, shape, or form. Everything is sales. 
I'm stealing that from a Sean Pendergast over at CBS radio, by the way, um, <laughs> everything is sales. And I was pretty damn good at it. And I had a meeting uh, about an opportunity that had nothing to do really with me involved with wrestling, uh, where I wanted to do some marketing with Vern Gagne. And somewhere along the line, that initial meeting turned into, hey, how'd you like to come to work for us? <laughs> and I learned, I didn't even know what syndication was. I was told by Mike Shields, he's no longer with us, but he said, hey, Eric, well, Vern wants to hire you, he wants to put you in, in syndication. I said, that is amazing, because <laughs> I didn't aspire to have a job in the wrestling business. Right. It's not what I took the meeting for. I never even thought twice about it. I'm a wrestling fan, yeah, watch it on TV, yeah, but never tried to get a job in a business. Right. But he said, yep, syndication. I went, great, I'll take it. Didn't even ask him how much money. <laughs> and then I went home and I told my wife, and she goes, oh, that's awesome, honey. What's syndication? <laughs> Oh, damn. <laughs> I don't even know. Right. <laughs> but I, I found out. I learned on the job. They knew I didn't know anything about it. Mike Shields knew. And he really mentored me and taught me what the television industry was all about and how it worked. And that's how I started. And basically ad sales and syndication. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That's great. I didn't even know what syndication was. <laughs> um, all right, cool. And then obviously, like I mentioned, Ted Turner hires, brings you to WCW in 91. Uh, Bill Watts resigns in, I guess, 93. 93 Watts left and Turner Broadcasting decided, okay, we got to treat this WCW thing like a television company, which means we need an executive producer, somebody that can kind of herd the squirrels and, and keep this train on the track we want it to be on. And I, Put my name in the hat and over a period of time ended up getting that job talk about all the initial things you started doing to up the production value you know tell our listeners where you moved the studios to a famous spot in orlando and a certain famous wrestler happened to be filming a, a film down there <laughs> yeah well as executive producer i really wasn't in charge of creative I, typically an executive producer would be but in wcw and turner at that time it was divided into two components one is the physical production of the television show. I oversaw that. The creative was was handled with it by a division called Wrestling Operations. I didn't call it creative. Right. Wrestling Operations. And when I first started, you know, Dusty Rhodes was the guy that was in charge of creative. So all I had control over was where we produced the show, the graphics, the lighting, the audio, um, anything that had to do with the physical production of the show. It, again, wasn't until afterwards when I kind of merged and took everything over. But while I was in charge of the physical production of the show, one of the things I had to do is manage my budget and manage the quality of the product. Up until that point, WCW had been traveling all over the Southeast, producing their shows in arenas. So they had a live audience, but they couldn't draw flies. I mean, it was horrible. They couldn't <laughs> give tickets away. Winos wouldn't even come for free wine. It was just horrible. <laughs> And it was expensive. So I started looking into producing the show at Disney MGM Studios because if you shoot it properly and you plan accordingly, um, it can actually reduce your production costs and really increase the production values. Because now you're shooting inside of a sound, sound stage that's actually built for television production. Right, you're not taking wise, this touring thing wise. on the road. It's a central location, right. not to mention Disney. Yeah, you're not going to some arena where they right. have horse shows on, on Sundays <laughs> and wrestling on Mondays. So I moved the, I moved the uh, production of our syndicated shows um, because I knew what they were by then. I moved the production of those shows to the Disney MGM Studios. 
And coincidentally, Hulk Hogan was filming a show called Thunder in Paradise there. Now, this is 1994, <laughs> yeah. late 93, early 94. So through Ric Flair, I had a conversation with Hulk one night, late one night. He called me like at one or two in the morning. I was sound asleep. <laughs> hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hulk Hogan here. Like he had to tell me who he was. Like I wouldn't <laughs> recognize his voice. But uh, yeah, that's how the relationship kind of grew from there. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, it paid off. Um, you know, I guess pretty soon you'd be turning a profit for the first time in the company history, I think. And you up the number of pay-per-views. I think at first, you know, it was like, you know, only a couple big tent poles, you know, WrestleMania, WWF, that kind of thing. And, you know, Great American Bash, whatever, WCW. But you go, I guess, what, to monthly eventually. Yeah, I did increase the pay-per-views and we did end up making profit for the very first time. But those two things were connected because the only real revenue that WCW could really increase upon quickly was pay-per-view revenues if you kept adding them. Right. Because they were a cash cow. Right. Um, at a low end, we could take home two, three, four million dollars on a bad one. Right. So that was my first big move. But as we're starting to, okay, wow, we're, we're increasing for WCW profitable for the first time since Ted Turner bought it. Yeah. His entire executive committee committee wanted him to pull the plug because nobody believed it could ever make money. And I validated Ted Turner, which is probably why I got a call in 95 and Eric or Ted said, Eric, what's it going to take to become competitive with WWE? And I said, Oh, oh, cause I didn't come there for that conversation. I was there to, I was there to sell Ted and let me distribute <laughs> shows to China. Right. And uh, Ted said, what's it going to take? And I, I go, well, Ted, they're in prime time and we're on Saturday nights at 605 Eastern, 305 Pacific. We can't be competitive ratings wise. And then do it. Okay. Give Eric two hours every night, head to head with Monday night raw. Primetime on TNT. So, I mean, Scott Sassa, he was the president of the networks. Harvey Schiller, my boss, we're all shocked. And I walked out there and said, okay, this is going to be sink or swim. I'm either going to make this work or I'm going to die trying, career, you know, professionally speaking. I love it. And, and, and a legendary show was born. I, like even on that first one on, on in September 4th, 95, I guess you're like in the mall and that people are coming up the escalators. It's great stuff. Um, but you had Lex Luger come out to interrupt Ric Flair and Sting and he confronted Hogan in the ring during the main event. Macho Man's out there and people are like, well, wait a minute, wasn't that guy just on WWF? And I bet you a lot of people started changing the channels over as you're luring away, you know, Vince McMahon's top stars. I mean, uh, how big was that to you to, to start bringing in some of those guys and create this like, whoa, wait, I thought they were on that program, but now they're here. Yeah, I mean, that was all about creating kind of spontane spontaneity. Um, that's one of the things that we learned in you know, preparing to launch Nitro. Uh, we did a lot of research with focus groups all over the all over the country. Lapsed wrestling fans, current wrestling fans, fans that only watch WWF, fans that only watch WCW, fans that watch both. And we'd ask all these different groups, these probably 15 different cities or more, what they liked about professional wrestling, what their expectations were, all kinds of things that we wanted to find out, what their feelings were about the product. And that research is what helped me shape Nitro. Because one of the things that came out consistently anywhere in the country amongst any of those disparate groups was they like surprises and they like spontaneity. As much as they like action, they love those two elements as well. Yeah. So Lex Luger was a great opportunity to right out of the bat, get people talking, you know, have a, a, a nitroglycerin type moment there, a spontaneous combustion, something that nobody expected. 
and controversial, hence the name of my first book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then that obviously dovetails perfectly into uh, the creation, your genius creation of the NWO, because Scott Hall and Kevin Nash show up as, you know, the outsiders at first. And then, you know, once you turn Hulk Hogan heel, they form that iconic badass trio. And you, I'm sure as a production element guy, you know, doing the black and white entrance video with that wah, wah, wah theme music and uh, taking us into the control room. Uh, talk about, you know, how you really with the, with that with that faction changed the business and blurred the lines of, you know, reality and scripted TV. Well, I, I think the reality and scripted TV, that, that portion of it, reality and scripted. I mean, everybody recognized wrestling as a scripted form of entertainment. Right. Athletic as it may be, it is what it is. And I wanted to find a way to kind of blur those lines so that it wasn't so apparent that it's scripted. In other words, I wanted people to feel. Because when you forget that you're watching something scripted and you just get sucked into the story or the characters, it no matter, it doesn't matter any longer emotionally, whether it's real or whether it's not. Right. You feel it. And I, I that's what the NWO was all about. It was unpredictable, it was spontaneous, and it was different than anything else that was on television at the time. And I think that's one of the reasons, one of the big reasons it worked is because it we got lucky. You know, timing is everything. Best idea in the world doesn't work if it's the wrong time for it. Yeah. And, and vice versa. But uh everything just kind of clicked. Yeah, I think the audience in mid 90s was ready for that anti-hero kind of thing. The old baby faces were heel dynamic was over. They wanted to root for the cool heels kind of and and, well, that's and, what and, and what's interesting is because that coincides with the way the audience was enjoying television. Yeah. Movies, pop culture in all general, of a sudden yeah. were dominated by badass bad guys that you just <laughs> couldn't help but wish you were one of them. You know, and 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 that's and that's our culture. We're still seeing that to this day, right? I mean, yeah. And we we kind of root for the the anti-hero. We 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 want to see that badass that we really wouldn't want our daughter to date, but man, it'd be fun to go out and have a beer with them. <laughs> yeah, you you hey man, you you sort of helped you paved the way and invented it before the Tony Sopranos and Walter Whites. You helped sort of usher in that as anti-hero. Well, in, in wrestling, I think that's a fair wrestling, statement. yeah. In wrestling, yeah. yeah. But it, it wasn't was just certainly being done in television and movies. Right. And but it wasn't just the cool heels. You had to do the other end of that, which, you know, you you built up like a monster baby like Goldberg. And uh, and then you also invent the cruiserweight division for the Rey Mysterios and the Dean Malenko's and Eddie Guerrero's, etc. So um, talk about to speak to those two things really quick. I mean, everyone always talks about NWO, but I need more, more people need to give you credit for a the cruiserweights and then be the, some of the big babies you built, too. Yeah, I think that's the that's the thing people have you know asked me over the years, you know, what are you most proud of? And I think the thing I'm really most proud of, even though NWO is, you know, what everybody else talks about the most, right. um, the cruiserweight division and the impact the cruiserweight division has had on today's product, anybody that denies it is kind of delusional because it really is so apparent. Because when I created the cruiserweight division, the, the, the big challenge I had internally, I'm talking about with my own roster, was what the hell are these little guys doing on TV? You know, they're, they're too little. They're not wrestlers. <laughs> no. How much could he bench for us? He only weighs 145 pounds and you're putting him on TV. You know, people thought I was nuts. Yeah. And it had been done before on a limited basis, but not giving them the crossover middle portion of a primetime show mm -hmm. and giving them their own division. But if you look at today's product, you look at AEW and even to a lesser degree, but WWE, um, 
that cruiserweight influence, the Luchadors, the Rey Mysterios, the Chris Jerichos at the time, um, Eddie Guerrero's, Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit, all of those guys changed the audience's appreciation for their style of wrestling. Yeah. And look what you see to this day. Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems today is everybody's gone too far with that style. Right. And it's just kind of a watching like Olympic quality, you know, gymnastic floor exercises. <laughs> but nonetheless, the athleticism and the impact that those guys in the cruiserweight division had on the industry as a whole, I think is understated. Right. I, so well said. It's probably your lasting legacy of all of, all of it. Um, all right. Well, so with all of that, uh, you, you're beating the pants off of Vince and WWF for a famous 83 weeks, as the podcast says. What, what caused then the downfall of WCW? Was it NWO getting too diluted? Was it the finger poke of doom? Was it Jeff Jarrett laying down for Hogan? Vince Russo coming in and you going out? Like, what, what would it be? A combination? It's a combination of two very specific things actually and they're both tied together but one is wwe after having gotten their butts kicked for 83 weeks and even before that we were really competitive with them right out of the shoot it was neck and neck from day one okay it wasn't until 96 that we just started eating them alive every monday night (laughs) but after about a year of being eaten alive and being embarrassed and being quite honestly, quite a ways behind WCW at that time in terms of you know, weekly ratings, um, Vince decided, okay, that formula works. Because up until that point, WWE was a teen and preteen rated yeah. show. Children's Kind of like it is today. Yeah. It was very, very soft. And, and unlike today, because the characters today are more reality-based characters in many respects, still some very animated, cartoonish type characters. <laughs> But for the most part, they're more of a reality type of a character, even though they're whatever. Yeah. Um, but at that time, it was all, you know, Doink the Clown and the Psycho Dentist. And the Occupation the IRS agent. <laughs> it was all like human cartoons. Yeah. Um, and I went the other way. I went for 18 to 49-year-old men with the NWO and other things. And Vince, after getting beat for a year or more, went, okay, we're going to do what they do. Let's just do what they do, but let's do it more. Let's get a little raunchier. Let's get a little edgier. Let's get a little more dangerous. Let's do things nobody's ever done before. Because that's how I got to where I was. That's where I got to where I was. Right. But Vince was smart enough to see that and go, okay, we're going to do what they're doing. Only we're going to turn up the volume. And they did. Well, while that shift in strategy was occurring in Stamford, Connecticut, back at Techwood offices in downtown Atlanta, the TBS headquarters, there was a merger going on. There was a lot of changes happening. And as a result of that merger and all of the demands of it and the way things were being restructured to maximize that merger, WCW ended up in a real bad spot. So did, by the way, a lot of other companies in Turner Broadcasting at that time, a lot of them, it wasn't just WCW. at that same time, I had an executive come in that's, that told me one day, I got called into a meeting, 15 people in a room I'd never met before, all sitting around and telling me how I was going to continue to produce WCW. They didn't even watch the product. They didn't know anything about it. Didn't know anything about the audience, the history, the market, nothing. But I've got a guy who is a very senior official now at, at Turner saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make your, your show 
family friendly. Okay, now picture this. I'm making <laughs> money hand over fist. Yeah. I took a $28 million a year company and turned it into a $350 million company in a course of about 36 months. Yeah. And now I've got a guy that doesn't even watch the product or know anything about it telling me how I'm going to change and no longer do what I did to get to number one. Mm -hmm. I'm going to change and go back to doing the things that the guy that I beat for over a year right. used to do and is no longer doing. Right. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so it was Vince going, okay, I'm going after that market instead of that market. And it was Turner Broadcasting in the most, I, I don't know, ignorant fashion possible going, no, 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 we're going to, we're going to go after teens and preteens, yeah. which means I had to change the creative completely. Right. And it was just a mess. On top of that, there were a lot of internal financial and structural changes being imposed upon us that I had to fight for over a year during the process of that merger. Wow. Yeah. And you mentioned, that's a great point. You mentioned that, that the society and Vince jump, jumped in that direction, which you had already been going, which was society itself was going into, you know, Jerry Springer, Howard Stern. It was reflecting right. the culture and you, you saw it early and Vince saw it a little after you, but you, that's the way it was going. Um, in addition to that, were you also, did you sort of keep a side eye over and look at some of these amazing superstars that they were building in the Attitude Era? Like, did you see Stone Cold and The Rock and The Undertaker of and course. Kane and Triple H and Mick Foley? Like, were you just like, uh oh? You see the The Rock speak, or you see Austin versus McMahon, and you go, uh oh. I mean, I mean, sure. I mean, as time went on, now you're yeah. talking about now into the 2000s with Rock becoming a superstar. Late Austin 90s, early well 2000s. Yeah, yeah. But the, the real pivot point where I really took notice was when they brought in Mike Tyson, when WWE brought mm. in Mike Tyson. Yeah. I knew that was going to work, but I had no idea that it was going to work as powerfully as it did because that decision to bring in Tyson and the way they used Tyson to yeah. set up Austin and McMahon was pure genius. Yeah. That was pure genius. Yeah. And that's what launched Steve Austin. Up until that point, you know, when Steve first got to WWE, he was the ringmaster. He was another kitty, kitty wrestler, right? Right. Now he's stone cold Steve Austin. He's chugging beer, flipping people off and kicking the boss's rear end. Yeah. That changes everything. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, I took, I took, a, I took great notice of that. Absolutely. And uh, it was just for us, the fans. I mean, come on, man. I was in middle school and high school during this whole thing we're talking about. It was perfect. It was, it was great to have both of the, both the competition. Do you, obviously it drove you each to be better, but do you think, were, were there any times that either side went a little too far, you know, either Vince doing like the billionaire Ted spoof or you guys dropping a women's title belt in the trash or Mick Foley, no, that, that'll so put so butts fun. in the seats, Mick Foley, you know, was there anything or was it all in all's fair in love and war? All's fair in love and war. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I love the billionaire Ted skits. Ted loved them. Ted laughed at them. <laughs> he took a videotape of it up to his office and everybody's nervous. You know, oh, I don't know what Ted's going to think when he sees this. I mean, he's Ted Turner. He's kind of like one of the yeah. biggest moguls in the entertainment industry. <laughs> and now they're making fun of him in a wrestling show. Oh my God, we're going to get yelled at for this. And we plugged it in. Ted laughed his ass off. That was great. Yeah. Do you think that, do you wish in hindsight you would have let DX in the Turner building? Oh, but, but look, I didn't prevent them from coming in. That's right, another, right. you know, BS narrative put out there by, you know, wrestling faux journalists. Right, right. Um, Set the record straight. And, uh, otherwise known as fanboys. Right, right. Um, but no, I, you know, I was in the middle of the ring on a live television show right. when they came to the door. 
I didn't, I, I heard about it as it was happening in my IFB with a microphone in my hands yeah. out there performing in front of a live television audience. So there was nothing <laughs> I could do yeah. to, to go out there and let them in yeah. uh, or, or prevent them from coming in. That was a decision that was made by Doug Dillinger, yeah. head of security. And it was the right decision because yeah. he wouldn't possibly know what was going on in my mind. And you know, what if things went bad and you, cause you remember how they came in, they came in with a Jeep and like a fake machine gun on it. You're going to let them in the back of your arena. <laughs> no, it was like a tank on a Jeep. Yeah. A cannon oh my or, goodness. Yeah. Can you imagine that thing driving through Baltimore right now? That thing <laughs> no. wouldn't make it three blocks. It would be shot up. <laughs> it, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have. I'm trying. What other, I feel like we've covered. Well, Oh, the other major flashpoint we have to talk of course is the, the Montreal screw job and Brett making WCW hands on the screen. Um, do you think Vince went far in that or would you have done something similar? You think Here, here's where, you know, people that like to have opinions on things like this really need to s- just take a minute, yeah. step back and go, okay, I've got to view this from two different perspectives and then see which one I identify with. Right. Vince didn't know what I was going to do. All he knew was what I had done in the past, having one of his talents or who he thought was his talent end up on my show without telling anybody, (laughs) dropping the women's WWF championship in the garbage on national television, calling him out for a fight. Giving away results. (laughs) No giving away finishes to his tape shows, all the crazy stuff I did to get to be number one. That's all Vince knew of me. What Vince didn't know is that because of litigation, we were being sued by WWF at the time for copyright and trademark infringement. There was a mandate from Turner Legal to me that basically said no references in any way, shape or form to WWF or WWE intellectual property. So for all, he didn't know I was going through that though. Vince didn't know. Right. I did. So when Brett and I talked about that and the belt, cause you know, Brett was concerned that, you know, losing right before he came in was going to hurt his positioning. Um, I said, man, it doesn't matter. Hey, you're Brett Hart. <laughs> whether you have a belt, whether you have three belts really yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Because you're Brett Hart and we'll go from the, we'll start from square one. Yeah. I could care less. I said, okay, Vince didn't know that. So Vince was preoccupied with getting that belt off of Brett before I could figure out a way to convince him to put it in a box and ship it to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I would have done it if I was Vince with, with the only information that Vince had at that time, I don't blame him for making the decision. He did could have gone about it differently, but he had to get the belt off and there was a lack of trust there and, and a concern about, what I would do or not do. Yeah. Um, from my point of view, like I said, it didn't matter to me, but you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes and ask yourself, what would you really do? You probably would have done what Vince did. That's a, such a great, such a great way to put it. Um, and then, so after all this back and forth, all the bad blood ratings battle, uh, we all see something we never thought would happen. You finally show up on Monday night raw after, you know, Vince bought WCW, um, what was it like stepping out there? I'm back. That <laughs> great theme song. What, what was it like doing that? And, and do you think it came a little too late? Cause it, it, the invasion angle was cool and all, but it would have been cooler if they could have got you and all of the people that were sitting out their contracts to come in. You know early. what, you know, what was funny. They tried a year earlier yeah. to get me to come in yeah. for that, for that angle. Yeah. And I turned them down. I, I didn't want to do it. 
Yeah. Now I didn't know I didn't know it was for an invasion angle. They didn't tell me anything. Mm, okay. I got a call from Jim Ross one day because he was head of talent relations. He said, uh, "Eric Walsh would like you to come in and talk to you about doing some stuff on TV. We need you to come in and we need you to be ready to go on Monday." <laughs> I said, "Jim, it's Thursday. We haven't even talked about money. We we haven't talked about any what What do you have in mind, Jim?" Well, you know, can't you talk about it too much right now. We got to kind of, you know, get you in here and, you know, get you in front of the, get you in front of the boss and, you know, see what happens. And I, I said, Jim, I'm, I got friends and it's over the 4th of July weekend. I mean, it's my wife's birthday. I got friends and family coming in from all over the country to hang out here in Wyoming with me. Surf Wyoming, by the way. Um, I said, Jim, I can't, no, thank you though. See ya. And somehow that got back to Vince and I'm sure, Ross didn't put it in the, because Jim and I weren't that tight back then. We are now, but back then I was, eh, he didn't want me to come in. So I'm sure Jim gave him some version of me saying no. And I, I said, okay, well that's over with. And a year later I got called in, but yeah, it would have been nice if they would have had a little, give me a little more time so I could plan my life a little bit and tell me what the hell they wanted me to come in for. I'd have done it. Well, they're giving Zoom is giving us the proverbial go home. I think we got the five minute warning. So, um, so yeah, we'll catch everyone up to the present then. So obviously WWE, you're there. Um, they, they induct you in the hall of fame. Uh, you're in and out sporadically, like you mentioned, TNA, AEW. Uh, what do we learn in the book from, from that recent period here uh, of, of bouncing around between those companies? About 12 years of material that we weren't able to discuss here yeah. because Zoom's telling us we got to go home. <laughs> but they <laughs> got to pick mean, up the book. a lot to cover. Yeah, you got to pick up the book. But I think, look, the book is about wrestling. I don't want anybody to think I'm out here trying to become a life coach or, you know, Tony Robbins or anything like that. But it is a really honest kind of look at my life because I, you know, I've had some amazing professional highs financially, you know, in every way you can measure. I've made billions of dollars in this industry. I've, I've done well for myself. I live in a beautiful home. I've, you know, I'm okay. Um, but there's been times during that 15 years where not, not doing so okay. Yeah. I never hit rock bottom, as they like to say, but I bounced off of it a few times, <laughs> you know, and that and, and, and the revelation and, understand, and just realizing how important gratitude is and how that affects the, your life in every other way. That's also what this book is about. And, and really pointing out very specific stories and interviews with individuals. That's the other cool thing about this book. We're going to have a QR code at the end of every chapter. So if there's somebody we're talking about, if I'm talking a lot about you and our relationship in chapter one, there's going to be a QR code. <laughs> the reader can take their phone and they're going to get an interview from you. And we're going to hear your perspective on that chapter. Wow. Never been done before. So we're going to be doing that. Always innovating. Uh, Eric Bischoff, always yeah, on the yeah, cutting I have to, man. If you get out of bed in the morning and you're not trying to think of something to do that's never been done before, I'm not sure why you do it. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Well, we uh, invite all of our listeners, everyone watching this around the world even, uh, to check out Eric Bischoff's new book. It's called Grateful. It comes out later this fall, but you can pre. it's on the pre-sale now, so uh, order a copy. If you do want to pre-order, go to bischoffbook.com, and if you pre-order, the book comes out November 11th, 2020, this year. 
Um, but if you pre-order, you're going to get an autographed version of the book from both Guy and myself. So that's why awesome. you want to pre-order now. And then definitely, you know, final seconds. Also, want to invite everyone to check out the 83 Weeks podcast. Um, speaking of you being ahead of the curve, you and Conrad Thompson, I believe that might have kicked off this entire wave of all these wrestling podcasts. No, it was really Bruce Pritchard. Oh, you're before, right. Yeah, I was number three. Bruce Pritchard was number one. Tony Schiavone was number two. I was number three. But I'm the most entertaining by far and away. <laughs> As you can tell from this interview alone. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll yeah, you'll get an idea of what the podcast is about. I tend to get in the weeds a little bit. No, are you kidding me? We can't wait to hear all about it in the book. Again, it's called Grateful Eric Bischoff. Thank you so much for taking so much time for us. This was a blast to talk with you. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Anytime, brother. All right, take care of yourself. See ya. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.